All right, so we are in uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Reads this way Jesus again here speaking to the angel at the church in Ephesus, write, there are, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And whoever has ears to hear... Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So before we dive into our, uh, our passage this morning, it's important to understand that each of the seven letters that are written to each of these churches, they, they follow the same basic format. Each of them begins with Christ introducing himself, greeting the church. He's introducing himself in a unique and personal way that connects something about the way that he revealed himself back in chapter 1 to, this, to these, each of these churches' situations and circumstances and to the specific things that he has to say to them. And then Jesus commends each of these churches. He affirms them. He encourages uh, the things that he sees in them that they are doing well, uh, except for two churches of which he has nothing positive to say. And then third, Jesus criticizes each of the churches. He highlights the ways that they are, that they are failing to, to believe and to live rightly as his people, as his ambassadors, as his light-bearing lampstands in the world. And then Jesus confronts them. You see, he doesn't just tell them what they're doing wrong. He calls them to repentance and change, and he tells them what will happen if they do not. And finally, at the end of each letter, he covenants with them. He promises them. He promises a reward to them, um, to all those who hear and who take heed of his words, a reward that will make the obedience and the endurance that he is calling them to absolutely worth it. And so each week as we study, we're going to use that framework to walk through each of the letters, five C's. So Christ, commendation, criticism, confrontation, and covenant. Hopefully that alliteration will help you as we, as we work through each of these letters. Five C's. So um, the first letter, it begins with Jesus' greeting to this church. Uh, the church is the church in Ephesus. This would have been the first, uh, the first city that a messenger coming from the island of Patmos would have encountered as on their way to this region. Um, and Ephesus was a, kind of the commercial and cultural center of the region, often referred to as the gateway of the province. People were coming in and out of the city of Ephesus all the time. Probably one of the reasons that Paul used the city and the church there as a base camp for his missions whenever he was on his missionary journeys throughout the region. One of the main attractions in the, in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, the, the goddess of, of fertility. And the temple was so impressive that it is listed among the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
And the influence of this temple and of the Artemis cult throughout the city of, of, of Ephesus, it impacted and invaded every part of life of the city. Artemis was considered the guardian of the city. Her temple served as the primary banking institution in the city. Her face was on most of the coinage that the city used. Festivals and games were regularly held in her honor. And so for all of these reasons, not to mention that the city of Ephesus had one of the best, most protected harbors Ephesus was basically the kind of the de facto capital of the region. And that combined with its beautiful location and excellent climate made it a really desirable place to live. Kind of think like West Coast, like LA or San Francisco, something like that. You know, a place which is kind of nice all the time, right? And in this great city, there was, uh, there was a church. It was a church that was started by the Apostle Paul, that was led by Timothy, that was taught by Apollos, that was served by Priscilla and Aquila, that was later pastored by the Apostle John himself. You see, the church at Ephesus had an unrivaled legacy amongst the early churches of the ancient world. And at the time of this letter, they continued to have a dynamic ministry and influence throughout the region. Yet this seemingly thriving church we see here in this letter from Jesus is on the verge of a swift and severe judgment from the Lord himself. And see, as we study Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, what we cannot miss is the danger of being a church who is doing all of the right things without the right motivations. Ephesus is a church that is doing all of the right things but without the right motivations. See, the calling of Jesus' people, of his churches, isn't simply about having heads that think rightly about him. It's, it's not just about having hands that serve diligently unto him. See, the worship that Jesus is worthy of, the, the witness that he desires to represent him, it requires first a heart that beats for him. A heart that is captivated and motivated by a love for him that overflows into a love for one another and a love for the world. You see, in Jesus, Christ introduces himself to this wayward church in verse 1 as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, indicating his authority over the church and over its leaders. And also, in, he introduces himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands or the, the church's Highlighting his presence and his, his imminence, his immediacy, his, his clearness, in his presence in the situation. You see, Jesus is the glorious, risen, ruling, reigning, sovereign Lord of everything. And like we saw back in chapter 1, we must see him as such if we're going to respond rightly to his words. You see, his words to this church there, in their, his introduction is a word of caution to them. You see, Jesus is in the one who is in authority over his church. He holds the stars, the angels, the messengers of his church, whether it's leaders, whether they are overseers, or whether they're human or supernatural, he holds them in his hands. They are not ultimately in charge. He is. And he walks amongst his churches in the midst of the lamp stands, keenly aware of all that is happening. He sees their trials, he sees their triumphs, and he sees their failures. You see, but his word of introduction is also meant to be a word of comfort to them. You see, it's a reminder that it is not Artemis who is their guardian or their provider. It's the risen, ruling, reigning, sovereign king of history. 
And he is not far off. He is not distant. He is not unaware of the situations and the circumstances of his people. He is near, he is present, and he is intimately aware of what is going on. And that leads us to the second part of the letter. You see in verses 2 and 3, Jesus goes on to commend this church in three ways. Verse 2 begins, I know your deeds, he says. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You see, the, the legacy of what had happened in and through this church was not a small thing. This church had embraced the gospel uh, that Paul had brought to them. And in turn, God had used this church and these people to make the gospel known throughout their entire region. Acts chapter 19, verse 10 says that because of the witness of Paul and of this church, all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. You see, this church gave their time and their money and their lives so that the gospel would be made known in their city and in their region and in their area. And they planted churches and they trained up leaders and they sent out missionaries. They, they worked hard. So Jesus commends them for their deeds, but secondly, Jesus also commends them for their doctrine and for their discernment about their doctrine. He, the church has taken seriously Paul's final words to them. In, in Acts chapter 20, Paul comes to this church, his very last interaction with them, and he warns them to be on guard against false teachers from inside and outside of the church. And in verse 2, Jesus commends them for doing just that. He says that they tested those who claimed to be apostles but were not, and they found them to be false. Remember, the city had people coming in and out of of it all the time. And so there were thinkers and people coming in and out all the time. And so it wasn't just one situation that just churches tested some bad theology. They were on guard regularly testing the truth about it. In addition, verse six says that they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, a group that we don't really know much about for sure. And so I won't spend time speculating about what they were, what they were doing, but whatever the specifics, the Ephesians recognized the heretical teachings of this group and they rejected them. In a letter that we have from Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, he writes about a report that had reached him about the church in Ephesus saying that it was a church that was so well taught in the gospel that no unorthodox sect could gain a hearing amongst its members. See, they were serious about believing the truth and about guarding the truth. Right doctrine mattered to them because they knew that what you believe, it always changes what you do. You see, orthodoxy always leads to orthopraxy. See, that's why, that's why we teach through books of the Bible here at River City, and we don't just water things down. We, we deal with the hard stuff and the encouraging stuff and all the things in between because what God's word says, it matters. And what we believe about what God's word says matters. It matters now and it matters for eternity. And so Jesus, we see here commending this church for their deeds and their doctrine. And lastly, we see him commending them for their dedication. I know I was writing the alliteration train this week. It's not always like this, but maybe it's helpful for you. Okay. Right. It was just, I don't know. I was just, just in the zone. Okay. Anyways, verse three, he says, you have persevered. You've endured hardships for my name, and yet you have not grown weary. This church had been persecuted and maligned in their city, but they had endured patiently. They were dedicated and devoted to Jesus and to his word in the midst of hardship. How amazing must it have felt to hear those words? If you were part of that church, how amazing must that have felt? Jesus sees us. He knows what we are doing. He knows how we're serving. 
He knows the sacrifices we've made. He, he knows how we're committed to staying true to his word. He knows, he knows what we have been up to. Any church would be proud to hear these words of commendation from Jesus if that is where the letter ended. You see, but it's not. And Jesus commends this church for doing all the right things. But in verse 4, he has one monumental and stinging criticism of them. Verse 4, he says this, Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You see, he wasn't criticizing this church because they weren't generous givers or because they weren't faithful servants or because they, they weren't patient endurers. They, they hadn't been led astray by bad theology and by bad doctrine. They didn't have the wrong books on the shelf. They didn't have the wrong pastors in the pulpit. They, they hadn't given up. They hadn't stopped trying. It was hard, but they did it. They had persevered. This is a church that you or I would walk into and on the surface it would seem like it might check all of the boxes you see, but Jesus sees what's happening internally, not just externally. And he says to them, you are absolutely dutiful and faithful. He says, but I can see your heart and I can see your motivations. And what I can see is that you forgot why you were doing any of the things you were doing in the first place. You see, somewhere along the lines in the 40 years since Paul had visited this, planted this church, Somewhere in the midst of all the spiritual battles and the church planning and the disciple making and, and all of the work of ministry, little by little, over time, they had forgotten why they were doing the things that they were doing. They had started to take the gospel for granted and their hearts weren't, weren't any more captivated by Jesus' glory and his goodness and his love for them. Their, their work they did was no longer motivated by a love for him and a joyful gratitude for all he had done and that overflowed into other people. Instead, they were just going through the motions. They were the right motions, but they were just going through the motions. And all they had left was dead orthodoxy and heartless morality and empty religion. And Jesus' criticism of this church is sobering. You can be doing all of the right things, but without the right motivations, it is still the wrong thing. One commentator explains it this way. In her keenness for the truth, the church at Ephesus had lost her love, the one quality without which all others are worthless. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, then I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, then I gain nothing. You see, let me just ask you this morning, is the fire of your love and your devotion for Jesus still burning in your heart, or has your love for him grown cold? You're not a heretic. You're not... You're not a false teacher. You've not walked away from God. You've not stopped giving or serving or reading or caring or investing in his people or his kingdom. But your love for him is cold. You see, the reality is that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, you are never standing still. You are never standing still. You are either drawing closer to him or you are drifting away from him. And God was gracious in my own heart to convict me of that this week. 
You see, it's easy to get caught off in a, in a life of doing ministry for Jesus, but miss a life of being with him in the first place. A life cultivated out of love for him. You see, the reality is, is what we do for the Lord is absolutely important. But what matters far more is why we do it. You see, our love for him matters. Our love for him matters. Our motivations behind what we do, it matters to Jesus. It matters to him. It matters to him so much that he doesn't just criticize this loveless church. He confronts them. In verse 5, he says, Consider how far you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. For if you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. You see, if we want to restore the love that we had at first, we must follow the instructions that Jesus gives. And I promise this is the end of the alliteration, but it was too good to pass up three R's, okay? <laughs> so we have C's and D's and R's this morning, right? The first step is rekindling, to, to rekindling our lost love for Jesus is to remember. First step is to remember. Verse 5, uh, Jesus says to them, consider. Consider how far you are far. And Jesus is saying, remember. He says, remember what it was like when the gospel was first good news to you. Remember what it was like when you realized, when your, when your love and your service for me flowed out of the realization that I loved you first. Remember that, what it was like when you realized that you had been given something that you never deserved and you could never earn. And, and in response, your heart overflowed out of a love for me. Remember when my love for you was the motivation for everything you did. Remember. That word to consider, it's, it's an active imperative. It means to remember and to keep on remembering. Literally, he's saying, keep on remembering. Keep on remembering all what it was like when the gospel was first good news to you. You see, that's why we talk about the gospel all the time here at River City. You see, the gospel wasn't good news. It is good news. Ongoingly, every day, to each of us, all the time, it must be. You see, the reality is, is that forgetting the gospel, taking it for granted, is the most dangerous thing we could ever do. You see, you talk about the things that you love, but the opposite is also true. You come to love the things you talk about the most. Jesus tells them to remember. I think one of the best ways to remember is, is to talk about it, to reminisce together. Whenever you're, or you're with your, fr your friends or your spouse, right? And you remember a story about something that had happened in the past or a, or a trip you went on or, or something that had happened. And you're telling those stories, right? What happens in the midst of telling those stories together? Right? You start to remember, man, that was, those were, that was so good. I love that experience. I remember that. It wells up in your heart just a remembrance and a, and a gratitude for those experiences and those times and a thankfulness for all that kind of stuff. You see, one of the best ways to rekindle your love for the Lord is to remember him by talking about him, how he has loved you, how he has pursued you, how he has worked in your life to tell those stories and to celebrate those things, to remember those things together. Remembering is not just an internal thing. We remember through our words and through our actions and through our stories we tell together. And so the Ephesians are first to remember, and their remembrance is meant to lead them to the second thing Jesus confronts them with. It's, it's meant to lead them to repentance. You see, that word repentance, it doesn't just mean to reconsider something. It means to turn around, to change directions. You see, repentance begins with confessing our sin, with admitting that we are headed the wrong direction. 
And it can seem a little odd to think about a lack of love as sin. Doesn't that seem a little odd to you? It just, it just feels something It's like, I don't, really? But when, you, well, when Jesus is asked in Matthew 22 what the greatest commandment is, he responds this way. The first and greatest commandment, he says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. So a lack of love for the Lord and for his people is a failure to obey the two greatest commandments that he has given. See, repentance begins by admitting that reality and by owning that. Not making excuses, not shifting the blame, facing it head on, and then rejecting it. You see, repentance isn't about just confessing what you, that you're going the wrong direction. It's about turning around and heading the other way. Verse, verse 5 ends, repent and do the things you did at first. He calls them to return to the things that they had done at first. Now, Jesus had commended this church for their deeds. And so this, this probably doesn't mean that they're to start doing something new, something radically different. But instead, it probably means they're to return to the practices that fueled the right motivations for the things that they were doing. I think one of the biggest things that was probably just spending time with Jesus on their own. You see, when you're first married, you want to spend all of your time with that person. But over time, what can happen is you kind of just drift and you kind of start just going through the motions and, and ministry and life and kids, it kind of takes up your time and, and you can miss making space to be with someone and it can just kind of become mundane and feel like it's just old. I know that can happen for me, but in the midst of ministry and serving my family and serving Jesus, I failed to make time to just be with Jesus himself. Not for the purpose of ministry, not for the purpose of teaching someone else, but just for being with him on my own. Like I said before, this has led my heart to being a little cold towards Jesus this week. You see, the reality is that a life lived, a life lived out of love for Jesus is fueled by a life being spent being with Jesus. A life live, that is lived out of love for Jesus, it is fueled by a life spent being with him. So Jesus confronts this church, not in anger, but in love for them. Jesus wanted this church to go back to a time when, when they would remember how much they had loved him at first. That would prompt a repentance in them, a turning around, a return to, to deeds they had done at first, deeds born out of love for him. But just like you and I this morning, the church at Ephesus was free to ignore these words altogether. But as we see in verse 5 at the end, a willful disobedience would result in dire consequences. See, Jesus warns this church, if they do not repent, their lampstand will be removed. That the church would cease to exist. And see, I need you to hear this this morning. Every saved person has eternal security, but local churches do not. Every saved person has eternal security, but local churches do not. Matthew chapter 16, 18 shows us that the universal church, Jesus' church, his church throughout the word is eternally secure. Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. But the Lord's continued favor on a local church is never guaranteed and must therefore never be presumed. Warren Wearsby writes it this way. He says, the church that loses its love will soon lose its light, no matter how doctrinally sound they might be. 
The church that loses its love will soon lose its light. No matter how doctrinally sound they may be, you see, Jesus longs for a church, his people that will not just think about him rightly or act about him rightly, but whose hearts beat for him. And you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference in a church that is just thinking rightly about Jesus, that's just doing the right things and acting the right way, but is not motivated and fueled out of a love for him. And that is not a contagious church. It is not a church who is, who is contagious in the world. It is not a church who serves as a light of Jesus unto the world. The letter ends with a call. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear. See, Jesus' letter to this church is a gracious invitation to them to return to the love and the life that he offers them. And I don't know about you, but I appreciate the fact that Jesus begins his corrective words to this church with words of encouragement. Jesus begins the letter. He says, I, I see you. I see you. I see what you're doing. I see that you're working hard. I see your perseverance under trials. I see your faithfulness to my word. I see it and I am proud of you. You have endured patiently. I see what you're doing. I know it. I am not unaware. I commend you for those things. I love you in those things. But I need your love for me to be the thing that fuels what you do for me. Because Jesus is saying to this church, we are not done yet. There are still more people to reach. And there is more truth to teach. And there are more things to do. He sees, he's telling this church, I love people that we have not gotten to yet. And I need you to love them too. Even when it is hard. Even when it hurts. And my love for you and your love for me is the one thing that will fuel that kind of a love for others. And so Christ, he reveals himself to this church. He commends them. He criticizes them. He confronted them. But each of these seven letters, as I said, it ends with a promise. It ends with a covenant that Jesus makes. Jesus makes all those who hear his words and who will heed them. Verse 7, he says, to the one who is victorious, to the one who hears and heeds his words, he promises to give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And without any context, that just sounds great. Hey, that just sounds like that, that, I want that. I am on the team of that, right? But when you realize the context of the city in Ephesus, his words ring out all the more clear. You see, Ephesus, again, was the home of the temple of the goddess of Artemis, the goddess of fertility, a temple that was referred to in its day as the paradise of God, a temple at, which there, at the center of which there was a tree that was thought by its worshipers to be the source of divine life and its connection point to humanity. And so Jesus' covenantal promise, it rings out all that much louder. He says, your city is full of people who are looking for life from a dead tree in a spiritually empty temple. Oh, but I have the life you are looking for. It's found in the true paradise of God. And you access it by a different tree. a tree that I hung on for you so that you might be victorious. You see, the victorious in this letter are not some special group of spiritual elites, but they are the true believers whose faith 
has given them victory. John, 1 John 5 tells us that. Revelation 17, 14, it reads this way. It talks about God's enemies who wage war against him and his people, but it says that he will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and with him will be his called and chosen and faithful followers. One commentator sums up the letter this way. He says, gospel faith makes people right with God, and it produces gospel faithfulness which reaps a gospel reward. Gospel faith makes people right with God. It produces a gospel faithfulness and it reaps a gospel reward. The book of Revelation is a triumphant vision of God's final victory over all the forces of evil in this world. It is a final victory secured because of his blood on the cross on behalf of his people so that they might be able to eat of the tree of life. See, and every week as we take communion... That's what we're remembering. We're remembering the love that we have of Jesus, the love we have for him. It comes by access to a different, by the access that comes through a different tree. The tree, the cross that Jesus himself hung on. And so we are reminding ourselves each week when we take communion about Jesus's body and his blood, which were broken and shed for us as he hung on the tree, receiving the penalty for our sin and our rebellion so that we might be able to eat from the tree of life that he offers us. And so communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember to remember the person and the work of Jesus so that we might live lives of repentance unto him, doing the things that we did at first so that we might be filled with love and a gratitude for him that overflows into a life of love lived for him. The bread and the juice are in the back. You simply, during our time of worship, you go back and take communion. There's a table on your left, on the right, and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice as you feel led, and you go back and do it on your own. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together the song, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if he is the one in whom you hope, if he is the one in which you, you love, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not yet, if Jesus is not yet your Savior and your Lord, if he is not yet the one that you love, then I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion. You are welcome here. You are welcome in this church. You are welcome as a part of this community. In fact, this church was started so that you might be here. But instead of coming to the communion table this morning, I would encourage you to come to Jesus first and love for him. So communion is something we do in response to all that Jesus has done for us. And so as we take communion, as we sing, as we talk with God this morning, ask him to rekindle the love that you had for him at first. Ask him to remind you about the good news of the gospel when it felt like good news in the beginning to you. Ask him to help you to remember the goodness of a love for him that comes out of responding to his love for you or ask him this morning to cause you to have a love for him in the first place, one that you never had before. Maybe you knew about Jesus on a head level. Maybe you tried to live rightly on a, with your hands throughout this, but you have never actually loved him in the first place. And this morning, I want to invite you to a love relationship with the king. Ask him this morning 
to give you a heart that can rejoice in him or that can remember him and ask him to give you a gospel faith that wells up in you a love for him that produces a faithfulness because of the gospel so that you might reap the rewards of the gospel with him. To that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, we are thankful that you are the great king of all things. You reign and you rule as the risen, ruling, sovereign Lord of history. And yet you love us, King Jesus. God, your words to this church are not words that come out of, of frustration. They're not words that come out of anger. They're not words that come out, of, that come out of, of, of just being done with this church. They're words that come out of love for them. So King Jesus, we ask you humbly that you might rekindle the love that we have for you at first. Or that you might give us a love for you, a first love for you in the first place. King Jesus, we need you to do that. God, we don't want to become a church in 40 years that somewhere along the way forgot the why we were, the, the reason why we were doing the things that we were doing. We don't want to be a church that's just doctrinally sound, just doing the right things, but missing the right motivations. And so, Jesus, we need you to captivate our hearts. God, this morning, would you be gracious to do that through our time in your word and and King Jesus, through our time in singing in response to you, God, captivate our hearts by you so that we might have the right motivations for living unto you. We pray, amen.